and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we, the Lost in Science team, talk about science uh, for about half an hour. My name is Stu and on the show this week I'm going to be talking to Emma Harding from the University of New South Wales. And, you know, we've heard a lot about viruses in the last few years. It's somewhat come to the end or it's sort of wrapping up a little bit with the the, the main one that's on everyone's mind. But I'm talking to Emma Harding uh, about a completely different set of viruses which affects non-human creatures Uh, and she's doing research into amphibian and reptile viruses which is not a closely not closely related species to humans so not really the source of any crossover viral problems that we might have but it is an issue for conservation and as far as looking after frogs and other amphibians and reptiles and other animals which are under a lot of pressure from human activity and habitat loss and all of those things uh, as well as having the potential to be affected like every other organism around by viral infections so i'll be talking to emma about her research and what she's found about the viral issues that amphibians and reptiles have to deal with and of course i'm joined by chris this week and chris what have you got for us well, Stu, I have my long-awaited story that I've been teasing for weeks, it feels like. Um, been building up to discussing the Nobel Prize in Physics for 2022. Um, look, it's a big one. This is why I want to make it do it properly. Um, it was awarded, as you may have seen, to Elaine Aspect, John F. Clauser and Anton Zeilinger for, and I quote, experiments with entangled photons establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. Yeah, I mean, I talk all, all the time with my friends about that one. It's just a, such a simple and enjoyable topic to cover, isn't it? Okay, so it sounds a lot jargony and is quite jargony, but it's getting to some, I guess, some fundamental stuff about the nature of reality and also like the future of technology. So I think it's quite an exciting one. Um, so yeah, I am trying to, I guess, uh, explain a little bit of what that's about. Um, I have to bring in a couple of other names as well, um, some special guests we'll have to discuss, but uh, yeah, you'll see those when they, they come up. I'm pretty excited to hear all about it because it's one of the more kind of theoretical Nobel Prizes in some time, so it'll be interesting to hear how this actually plays out. So more of that later in the show, please stay tuned. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and as I said, I'm talking about the Nobel Prize in Physics for this year. Uh, so it was awarded to three physicists, um, Elaine Aspect, John F. Clouds, and Anton Zeilinger, for their experiments on entanglement. Um, look, so, look, Stu, I'll take, a, I'll take objection to what you said. It's a very theoretical one. This was specifically awarded to experiments. But, uh, look, it is quite, I suppose, it's getting to some... theoretical almost philosophical aspects and that's part of the story as well i think i kind of meant that it's not something you can uh engage with in an everyday way um it's not ballistics or something that's tangible in that way it's something pretty fundamental about the way as you said earlier uh the way the universe works yeah it's also to do with our um struggle to understand the way reality works 
So look, um, I'll, I'll dive right in. As I said, I need to bring in some other names. Um, one of these names you may have heard of is someone called Albert Einstein. Oh, yeah, I think I know that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Einstein is probably known for quite a few things, but um, one of the things he was known for was being, he's one of the founders of quantum physics, in fact. Uh, indeed, that's what he won his Nobel Prize for when he won it himself. Um, but despite this, he still struggled with some of the, the really counterintuitive aspects of quantum theory. Um, so that's just something to bear in mind if you find yourself, you know, finding it a bit hard to understand or think it's strange. You're in very good company. So, look, in, in 1935, Einstein published a paper along with his colleagues Boris Podolsky and Nathan Rosen. Uh, together, the trio was called EPR. Uh, and they published this about a thought experiment uh, in which measurements are made on two particles that are part of the same quantum system. So, for instance, they could be electrons released from a source. Um, electrons are spinning particles, and these electrons are kind of released from the same source. Um, there was And there was kind of net zero spin at the beginning. Then you know that these two electrons are going to have to be spinning in different directions. Okay? So in the, EP, in the EPR thought experiment, once you measure the spin of one of these particles that's emitted, you know that the other one has to have the opposite spin. But from quantum mechanics, you know, we know that if their particles are in a superposition state, which they will be if they were released from this, um, from this uh, quantum system in the beginning, then they won't have a definite spin until they're measured. They're like the famous cat in the box. Then nothing is definite until they're actually measured. So that means that when you make the measurement on one of these electrons, you instantly affect the other one, no matter how far away it is. And that's something we say that these particles are entangled in that aspect. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Um, and it seems to contradict the idea that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light because it's instantaneous kind of change to the other particle. So... You know, that was also one of Einstein's, I guess, big achievements. So he, naturally, he didn't like this concept. And with the EPR concept, they proposed that instead the spin was already predetermined by some hidden variables. So these are kind of basically the idea that there was this more fundamental theory underneath quantum theory with these uh, special magical hidden variables. And you just don't know what their values are until you measure them. So everything is determined at the fundamental level in this idea, but... You know, it's kind of hidden by the maths of quantum physics. So this suggests that, like I said, that quantum theory is not a fundamental theory, that it's incomplete. Uh, and of course, there are many people who disagreed with this idea, but the general consensus among physicists was that it didn't matter. Uh, there was this approach that was well known, which was basically called shut up and calculate. I, the maths works, quantum physics works, like mathematically, it makes predictions for experiments. So don't worry about these philosophical, metaphysical questions about interpreting it. You can never answer them anyway, so just just use it. It works. I mean, this is a fundamental reality about human beings is that we don't have to know necessarily how things work exactly to get them to work practically. So uh, I can kind of understand that, but I also think that it is the job of physicists to work out exactly what's going on. Exactly. And some people were not phased by this. Uh, very much a minority. It was not, like I said, the, the idea was shut up and calculate. It was not a popular field to work in. And the people who worked in it often found their careers hampered by, the, by, the, um, by their work in this area. And they kind of had to do it in their spare time and that sort of thing. Um, one of the people who did that was uh, Northern Irish physicist John Stuart Bell. 
He liked EPR, Einstein's ideas of hidden variables, and so he tried to come up with a way that they could be tested. So in 1964, he published a different version of their thought experiment that um, basically did a lot of experiments on a kind of a similar kind of system and found that there's a different probability of the results that you would get if you had quantum theory and if you had hidden variables. So he found a mathematical difference. Um, the important thing is, yeah, he was trying to keep Einstein's idea of knowledge and communication. These were called local hidden variables. So everything had to become a, you know, it's it's a local hidden variable for local people. If you, so a bit of a deep dive quote there. So this um, idea was known as Bell's theorem and the mathematical relation he came up with for the probability is called the Bell inequality. Um, all named after him. They're all names for the same thing, but it's a very important thing. Um, now, Bell himself, he actually died in 1990. Um, he died suddenly from a brain hemorrhage. Um, he was, it was rumoured that he was nominated for the Nobel Prize that year, but one of the rules with a Nobel is that it can't be awarded posthumously. So, yeah, he missed out, even though he is kind of at the centre of all this work. So, basically, this work couldn't have happened without this other guy's work happening first. His name is actually in the citation. They say, you know, they... they did experiments on Bell inequalities. So, you know, he was fundamental to it, yeah. But yeah, so these the, the actual winners were the people who took his theorem then and turned it into reality. So American John Clauser was the first. He did an experiment in 1972 that um, violated the Bell inequality, basically showed that quantum mechanics was in fact correct. Um, however, his was a fairly small experiment. There was a bit of a loophole in that, you know, the detectors were close together. Um, and there was this idea that perhaps what you had decided to measure, the way you set up your detectors, could have affected the quantum state. So in the early 1980s, French physicist Alain Aspect showed, did it again basically, tried to remove the loophole, put the detectors further apart, had a special way of switching so that it wasn't determined until the particles already left their source. Um, and yeah, he showed that it still worked, um, that the the quantum physics still held up as opposed to the hidden variables theory. Um, and as a result, his experiment is actually better known than Klaus's experiment. I remember when I was um, learning physics that yeah, Aspect's experiment was the one that was kind of considered the, the groundbreaking one. Um, it would be a remiss to me not to point out that there is another idea apart from local hidden variables that could perhaps be tested here. There is this concept called super determinism, which some people kind of make a big point out of, which is the idea that you can explain it all if in fact everything is fully determined, that your choice of what to measure, you you yourself are determined by some fundamental theory and that you don't have full control over. It's not it's not fully random at all, but um, that's a bit harder to disprove. It gets even more metaphysical. We won't go into that too much. So far though, quantum physics does seem to be holding up. Which brings us to our third candidate, who was Austrian Anton Zeilinger. And he basically took the concept of entanglement even further. He did more experiments in more interesting ways, but he also turned it into practical technology. Um, so some of these things you may have heard of, um, there's quantum teleportation, which is where if you introduce a third particle into the entangled pair, you can transfer its information to one of the others by making the right kind of measurement on it. It's a bit complicated for me to go into much detail. It's a pretty hard thing to get your head around, but it's essentially it's teleporting one quantum state from one place to another using entanglement. Um, and apart from kind of that sort of teleportation, it's important for moving information around quantum computers, which is a technology that is still being developed. But it's, you know, essentially a great way of moving quantum information. You don't have to measure it. You basically can transfer it from one place to another. 
Um, apologies, I am using the Q word quantum a lot and this is hard to avoid. But a lot of these sentences sound like they're good Scrabble games, I suppose. Um, there is, he also came up with something called entanglement swapping, which basically is where you can get, um, you can pass on the entanglement from one pair of particles to another. So essentially it allows you to send the quantum information over longer distances. So you can basically swap the entanglement from one place to another. Because these states are fairly fragile, they don't last over very long distances in say optical fibers. But if you have this entanglement swapping, you can essentially kind of pass it on like a relay down the chain. Um, there's quantum cryptography. This uses the, the fact that no one can eavesdrop on a quantum communication because they will break, if they do so, they will break the entanglement, they'll break the superposition and you can tell that someone has, has broken into it. Um, so look, these are all basically all practical implications that we're gonna see more and more use of as quantum technology becomes more used and they'll become more and more important in our future. Um, but they came out of something that was considered this, like I said, irrelevant, metaphysics relevant philosophy like Clauser, like i said he's he um he struggled to find a job after his initial experiments um because it wasn't considered what he's doing was real physics some journals wouldn't publish essentially papers on this topic now he's won a Nobel prize from it but at the time it was not considered real physics and now like it's a it's the basis of you know new technologies and it's Nobel winning um, and look, it may even go further. I mentioned last week that there is kind of people using the idea of entanglement uh, as kind of part of the plan to unite gravity and quantum mechanics and understand how the whole universe is stitched together. Um, it's essentially using wormholes as a way of explaining how you get this instant communication between the two particles, um, which like if you're a fan of quantum theory initially sounds unnecessary because it works without some sort of wormhole or loophole, but their work is getting intriguing results, so it's kind of, there may be something to it. Um, but what we have learned is that entanglement is kind of the central feature of quantum mechanics, and it's going to be a central feature of new technologies. This prize, I think, it, like I said, it, it recognizes truly significant research, which, you know, you may think now is a bit esoteric, a bit obscure, but, you know, come back to me in 10, 20 years, and you'll see, I think, you'll be on my side and understand the importance of, of this work. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful, radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's, uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, a lot of people may not have really thought about viruses very much, but in the last two, three years, we've kind of been forced to confront the reality of viruses everywhere. And obviously, viruses have caused problems for humans for a very long time, even before we understood what they actually were. But we're not the only living things on the planet, and there are a lot of other living things and there are a lot of other viruses that affect those living things and I have got on the show with me this week Emma Harding from the University of New South Wales to talk a little bit about uh, her research and research that she has participated in looking at viruses that affect um, some much earlier vertebrate life forms on earth we're talking about amphibians and reptiles and how that can sort of inform our understanding of viruses as a whole as a bigger group so thanks for joining us on lost in science emma thank you great to be here now i have to ask first of all having looked at some of the research did you come at this 
research from being a froggy person or did you come at this research from being a computer science-y person or was it a mixture of both? It was a mixture of a computer science-y person and a virus researcher. So I've never touched amphibians or reptiles before or had anything to do with them. Um, I just saw a gap and decided to use my virology expertise to have a look. Okay, so it's interesting. So you've come from a virology background. We were talking, we, uh, one of our um, presenters, occasional presenters on the show, Katriona Nguyen Robinson is a, uh, she works on T cells in, um, you know, uh, immune responses. Um, is, the, is there a lot of uh, similarity between, you know, the way that uh, amphibians and reptiles defend themselves against viruses as their as the human immune system, or are they or are they different systems? That's a great question, um, and one I'm looking into as well. So immunology is a completely different field. It's very complicated the immune response to infection, but amphibians do and reptiles do surprisingly have quite a similar response to humans, they do have a lot of the same cells that we have, but very little is known about the checkpoints of what happens during infection. I tend to stay away from that and look more at the viruses themselves because they're a lot simpler in many ways. And so so a lot of your work is looking at um, sort of cataloguing the viruses that affect um, amphibians and reptiles. But the, and, and I have read that some earlier work um, identified a whole sort of family of new viruses that were previously unknown, but they were from fish, I think was. Yes. So can you, can you explain what, what was surprising about that finding with the, with the, uh, the fish virus that was discovered? Yeah, well, going through, you know, primary school, high school, university science, you're kind of taught that we know a lot about what's out there. So it's always a lovely surprise when you find something new. Um, and so there's this family called the adomaviruses, which are a type of virus that only, we've only found fragments of them, bits and pieces. Um, and 2019, I think, was the first one found in a fish. And so what we found in our study looking at amphibians and reptiles is five new adomaviruses, which shows that if we're finding fragments two years ago and suddenly more fragments now, there's probably a lot of them out there, but we didn't know what we were looking for. So we hadn't found them yet. And the promise is if we've found this one new family, there's probably many others still to be discovered. They're just really tricky to find because you need to know a little bit about what to look for in the first place. Right. So, and, and viruses um, are not, not, technically living things they require a living host to replicate um, and and so does that does that mean you know because they, they're not free living organisms like a bacteria or something like that you have to find the virus actually in a host or or you would you wouldn't even know that it was part of a virus if it was just floating around by itself how do you identify the fragments as virus particles or parts of viruses um, we can still find them outside of the host and in the host as well because they have a thing called a capsid which surrounds them. It's like a really hard shell, like an egg. Um, and so that protects the DNA or RNA on the inside. So when we look for viruses, we look for these patterns of DNA or RNA that we know are only found in viruses. 
So if it's protected by the shell, that means that even if we're looking at a soil sample or a water sample or some liver from a turtle, if we see the same pattern, we know that it came from a virus. And so the, 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 that capsid is present on, is that present on all viruses or is it just on these? That's all viruses, yep. Okay, so you that, that gives you them, a... So you can think of them like little spaceships. So the important stuff, like the people, are on the inside, but they're protected by the hard shell. And so as, as viruses travelling between people or between planets, you know, it needs that protection. So they all have that. Yeah, I have. I've seen a uh, an electron micrograph of a of a. I can't remember which virus it was, but it looks like a little lunar lander with the 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 capsule on top and the little legs that kind of grip grip onto the cell to inject yeah. the the virus. They look very very sci sci fi, really. But yeah. Hmm. Um. So so why why with with the discovery of this fish virus or this virus in the fish what led your research to amphibians and reptiles and I realized that um, particularly amphibians are under threat in a lot of areas due to habitat loss and things like that but obviously disease pressure would put even further pressure on them but is that part of the reason you were looking into the into the the reptiles and the amphibians yes definitely so what we're seeing as the result of a lot of things, including uh, like climate change, people, uh, like urbanization, is we see a lot more interaction between humans and the environment. But that's not just happening with humans in the environment. That would be happening with animals within the environment as well. They would be pushed out of their normal ranges and interacting with a lot more species. So we're seeing pandemics in people more frequently, but we'd expect to see outbreaks in animals more frequently as well, driven by the same forces. So my interest in amphibians and reptiles is, like you said, a lot of them are endangered, especially in Australia. So it's nice if we can think that there are going to be more outbreaks, it would be nice to be able to react quicker and have a bit of a short list or an understanding of what are the prime suspects, because um, that will help us identify it much quicker. So you were you did mention just a few moments ago the the turtle livers. Now I know that's probably related to a specific. Uh, viral outbreak in a turtle population. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, so there was an outbreak of in the Bellinger River turtle in northern New South Wales in 2015, which killed most of the adult turtles there. I think it was about 80 or 90% of them died. And it wasn't until three years, three years later that we found what caused it, which was a virus. Um, and so the study that I was leading was looking at 235 different samples. So some of those were livers and spleen, some was skin, some was brain of all sorts of turtles, reptiles, amphibians, um, to try and look for viruses like that so that we could try and stop what was happening in the Bellinger River from happening again. And so, you know, you say, you say there was an outbreak in 2015. Is there any kind of idea of where this virus came from or why it suddenly became a problem for the turtle population? Or is that still a bit of a mystery? That's still a bit of a mystery. And that's part of what we want to fill in is it probably, if it was in such an isolated river, was unlikely to come from another turtle. Um, so, you know, maybe it came from a bird, maybe it came from a mammal. We're not going to know these things until we go out and look for them. And just like we did with coronavirus, where we looked and saw it was similar to a pangolin one, so that's a possible source, we need to be finding these possible sources of transmission between species in the environment. 
And so, and so the research you're doing is um, um, trying to assess the diversity of viral, uh, are, are they called species? I don't know if they're called species in viruses. Uh, strains, families. Yeah. Okay, so, but, but trying to get a, trying to get a, a catalogue of how many different viruses there actually are in the environment. Exactly. Um, and, and, and that will lead to being able to maybe trace where they're coming from and maybe even predict problems in, in future. Yeah, that's the idea. So if we have a catalogue of what's commonly circulating and infecting things, it means we do have a short list. So we see a sick amphibian or reptile and we can say, okay, let's look for the top five viruses. If it's not one of them, then we'd have to go more in depth, but hopefully it's one of the top five really quick um, predict or identification and then really quick treatments. We can also look at virus evolution as a whole. So now we know stuff about fish viruses. Now we know about amphibians, reptiles, then we know mammals. So we can look at the trends in evolution, like what generally changes, what doesn't change, and use that to predict the future. Um, and so that's not just in amphibians and reptiles, but in any species by getting that big history. Um, and also just, yeah, understanding a bit more about what's out there never hurts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you're talking about evolution. So obviously viruses being dependent on hosts to exist in the first place and then to replicate and spread, they must have, the earliest viruses must have been infecting fish and then amphibians and then reptiles bef well before there was any mammals around to infect. So, yeah. um, you know, does, does that lead to the idea that, the viruses that infect mammals are sort of uh, descended from viruses that may have infected earlier evolved life forms. Yeah, that's exactly what we were trying to look into. And we found that that was the case in some of the viruses. The ones we were finding in amphibians and reptiles were a lot simpler. So they would only have four or five parts. And then the mammalian version might have 10 to 11 parts. So it looks like they were an ancestor of what we find infecting us. But for other viruses that jump between species a lot, they seem to just be very complicated all around. doesn't matter what animal they're infecting. So we see these two trends. It either follows the host evolution or it doesn't. So it's, I wonder, there's maybe no way of telling whether those ones that do jump, are they, is, is the ability to jump between different species and different classes of animals related to that they've got these many different parts to them that can allow them to do it like a like a uh, Swiss army knife of viruses. Yeah, we definitely think so. Um, they have more in their arsenal so they can use more strategies. Okay, so um, I mean I know we we suspect that the coronavirus jumped from some other organism into humans. Is that an issue among the among the amphibians and reptiles? Is there is there is there a lot of ability to move from one species or one class of animal to another? There is definitely. Um, so it, it's very early days in this kind of research, but we would expect the same thing. You know, turtles or frogs probably had their own coronavirus pandemics that just went unnoticed, jumping from a toad to a frog to a salamander or something. So it definitely is something we expect happens quite frequently. Well, it's interesting to know. And, and as you say, that if, if you've got simpler models of viruses in, in these populations, we may actually be able to use that to figure out, 
you know, viruses that affect us directly. Not that we're the most important thing, but it's often easy to get funding for for human threats, I think, than, than, Definitely. than environmental ones. But um, it, it sounds like really interesting research. And um, yeah, I, I'm glad you had the time to fill us in a little bit about it. Um, but yeah, so thank you for joining us on the show. And um, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for, for further publications on your research. Thank you so much. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.